Hello and welcome. Thank you again for joining me this week. It's David Widmar, co-founder of Ag Economic Insights. And of course, this is the Ag Uncertainties podcast or YouTube channel, depending on how you're consuming this. And this is where we join you once a week to talk about the latest content and ideas that we've shared on the AEI Premium platform. This is uh, designed for AEI Premium subscribers to sort of uh, think a little bit beyond the articles and the questions that we're putting together. So joining you today to talk about a couple topics we want to talk about today. One is soybean oil, two is acreage and for the 2022 acreage debate. And finally, we're going to wrap this up by talking a little bit about daylight saving time. So let's jump over here. And we wrote a few articles. You know, if you remember back in September, we started talking about this donuts versus diesel debate, the spinoff from the food versus fuel. And we posted an article with a few charts earlier this fall, and we noticed how soybean oil prices, of course, stepping back, you know, the soybean itself component crop. It's not like corn where you can take corn and you can feed corn directly. Corn on its own has uh, economic use and value. Where soybeans, uh, the soybean itself has to be split into subcomponents and those subcomponents then find their own unique marketplaces or they have their own supply and demand factors. And so what we've uh, seen is when we split the soybean into the oil and its meal, meal typically goes into feed. And if we think back far enough, a uh, meal was a primary driver of economic incentive for raising and crushing soybeans. I like to remember I grew up in Kansas and there's a big livestock sector, especially cow calf. And so the co-op used to have a soybean crush plant. And I don't know when they built a crush plant, um, but they used to always crush soybeans. So you drive into town, you could smell the crush plant doing its job. And it was primarily for the feed. So there's crushing soybeans for the feed. And they were trying to find an outlet for the oil. And then of course, now um, a lot of things happen there, but now that's gone because now the primary demand for soybeans in that part of the world is the oil. And so there've been a lot of, you know, biodiesel plants built in the last 10 or 12 years to, to step in there. But the point there is meal used to be driving the economic engine. And so what we saw earlier this fall is that oil prices got to about 70 cents per pound, touched 80 cents briefly, but these are data that coming out of Illinois and 70 cents a pound is relevant because about 30 cents is the long run average or the expectations that we could have built in. So 30 to 70 cents is about double. Uh, and so we saw this really taking place starting back in the fall last year. It started creeping higher at the beginning of this year, 2021 is about 40 cents, which is pretty darn high. And now of course we're at 70. We've been holding at 70 for three or four months now. When we wrote that earlier post, it was kind of like, this is going on. We'll see how long it plays out. And it's still there. And I think it's relevant to think about this because this new soybean crops being harvested, there isn't as much of a... Uh, narrative built around like, oh, we're at the end of this marketing year. We'll see what happens with the new crop. The new crop's here and it's still staying high in the prices. Uh, meal prices, the crush spread. Uh, you encourage you to look at this, but the crush spread or how much earning potential is going on with soybean crushing, it's still very, very strong. So we have a combination of soybean prices have actually gotten uh, cheaper over the last three or four months, thinking about the summer highs that we saw in those soybean prices, oil prices have continued higher, meal prices have settled, but the net here is the crush spread continues to strengthen historically favorable crush spread. And this gets us to, I think, one of the most interesting dynamics is that the value of crushing a soybean uh, 
And the share of it that comes from the oil historically had been around 30, 35%. Today, it's over 50%. And it's historically strong. We've never seen oil itself really taking a lion's share of the economic incentive. So we followed, we updated those charts and we want to dig even deeper. And we step back and say, hey, what's going on with soybean oil production? And a couple things to note. First, soybean oil production in the U.S. has increased at an average annualized rate of about 2.4% for about the last 11 years. So not a, a, a a huge growth rate, but it's a consistent growth rate. And we see this a lot in agriculture, slow rates of growth that play out over long periods of time. So a 2.4% rate of growth over a decade is not insignificant, or it is part of our economic, you know, part of the demand growth story that we think about in the U.S. What we also did is we stepped back and said, okay, where are the uses of soybean oil? And the USDA has some data on this, and they call it disappearance because uh, it's kind of the, the how we've allocated where these sources go. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is there's three broad categories. There's exports, and exports over the last uh, 11, 10 years have been unchanged to slightly lower. They've ebbed and flowed, but they account for about 2 million pounds of usage. The big source of usage, about 2 billion pounds, was exports. Uh, about 14 billion pounds goes to food, feed, and other industrial uses. Um, and that's about 14 billion year in and year out that hasn't changed. But what has changed is the biodiesel component. And if you really look, the biodiesel story started around 2015. So there's about six, seven years of increased biodiesel usage. And again, a demand source for soybean oil. And that's actually growing at 10% annually. So that is actually a pretty rapid growth. And so when you take those three components, biodiesel, food, feed, and other ind industrial and then finally exports. That's that story we talked about before, that 2.4%. But when we break it into its components, exports has arguably been going lower. Food feed and other industrial uses have been flat, and it's all being driven by this biodiesel story. And so we got to keep an eye on this as we see it play out. We'll take a look at the global picture of soybean oil here in a future article. But when we think about this increased usage, we have a tight stocks to use ratio. In fact, Stocks use are among the tightest that we've seen for soybean oil going back um, all the way to the 2000s, about the third tightest in 20 years. So this is helping you dig a little bit deeper. We see a lot of articles about the soybean oil situation, and we wanted to dive a little bit deeper, providing you with some insights that we don't see other folks talking about. The second article here, something that people are talking a lot about, uh, I'm going to stick to the forecast network questions. We've asked... Uh, four questions now about the 2022 acreage debate. I think the most important one is the wheat question. We think a lot about wheat and winter wheat acreage. That, of course, is a really strong um, factor, easily overlooked given the time of the year and the geographic area. So a lot of growers in the Corn Belt say, I'm not worried about wheat, I'm worried about corn and soybeans. But every acre of wheat that is or is not planted, uh, every marginal change in wheat acres impacts indirectly the corn and soybean outlook. But that's already been in there. I want to talk about uh, three new questions. One is the probability of U.S. corn acres exceeding 93 million per the March perspective planning report for 2022. The second is the probability of soybean acres exceeding 87 million in that March perspective acreage report. And finally, the probability of the two crops, corn and soybeans collectively or in summation, exceeding 180 million acres. And so I think it's easy to step back and say, oh yeah, corn acres are going to be down, soybean acres are going to be up. 
but the combination of these four questions, I think are really hard to answer. In fact, the first time you answer them, you should just go as quickly as possible and not think about the interactions and then step back and start plugging them in the interaction. Because if you think winter wheat acres are gonna be up and you think soybean acres are gonna be up a lot and you think corn might be down a little bit, then the question starts to become, well, how does a big change in soybeans, a little change in corn and, a, and an increase in wheat, how does that impact that 180 million acre combination? So these can kind of be hard to solve or to answer in tandem. I think this is reflective of the challenges we see in the acreage debate. Cotton and wheat aren't going to be giving up acreage willingly uh, or, or very uh, easily. They're, in fact, I we believe there's a possibility of winter wheat acres being up, especially spring wheat. So all wheat acres could be up quite a bit. We have a great article that you can read about that. Um, if you add a couple million acres a week, that limits how much is available for corn and soybeans. We also noted in the articles, prevented planting was really low here in 2021. So if we go back to a normal prevent plant, um, all else the same, it could mean that there's less corn and soybeans actually planted in the ground. So what, how does this impact the initial expectation? So I'll share my forecast, encourage you to update yours, but also, you know, as people are talking about the corn and soybean debate, ask them these questions. What's the probability of this being higher? What's the probability of this um, big of a change? So right now my corn expectation, again, it's the probability of corn acres exceeding 93 million. I think it's about a 65% chance and the consensus is hanging in around 40%. Again, 93 is because we planned 93.3 million uh, here in 2021. The question with respect to soybeans is the marks 87 million and we plan at 87.2. I think it's a 44% chance of occurring and the consensus is close to 70%. And so we'll see how that changes in the next coming. Of course, these are long burn questions, right? So we have a lot of change to calibrate our, our forecasts. And the probability of both of these being in excess of 180 million, we had at 180.5 million. I have a 40% chance and the consensus is at a 60% chance. So corn, soybeans, corn plus soybeans, and then also winter wheat is out there. Encourage you all to get in there, share your expectations. Again, we like to say you win some, you lose some, but you're always learning. And the goal here, of course, is to be always learning. So uh, invite you to take a chance Take a look at that, put your forecast in and see what you think. So finally, I was on Twitter today and I got to thinking um, about daylight saving time. First off, I learned that it's not daylight savings time, it's daylight saving time. And the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to be upset this weekend about daylight saving time. And I think there's a few things to think about. Why would you be upset about daylight savings time? Is it because of change? Do we just not like to change our clocks? Is it because after this weekend, it's going to be darker earlier? Or is it some combination of about, you know, this, is this darker earlier? Or are we just frustrated at the idea of, of changing clocks and the idea of daylight saving time? And what dawned on me is that this is actually the end of daylight saving time. So daylight saving time is over. So if you don't like daylight saving time, this should be the weekend that you're happiest because we're, we're ending it until, of course, 2022. It'll be in the early spring that we'll change it. Another quick thing I want to mention about daylight savings time is uh, I'm happy to announce that the second season of our podcast series, um, and we're titling this Corn Saves America. So season one was Escaping 1980, and now we're at Corn Saves America. And we actually mentioned daylight saving time in, in this episode because it was back in 
2005, six, seven, that era when the W. Bush administration was facing the oil crisis, the energy crisis that we had that time period, they actually moved daylight savings time to have it start earlier in the calendar and last longer in the calendar. And so they actually tried to add more time to, to make that fit. And so uh, it's also kind of a throwback. It's interesting how uh, we're having this conversation and how um, the frustrations about daylight savings time, it seems like an easy thing to complain about, especially on social media. But my point here is to keep in mind that we've recently changed it, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we adjusted it. And also if we're upset about it, you really have to step back and think, what is the frustration? Is it really that we don't like daylight saving time? Is it that we don't like dark uh, hours in the winter? If you, that's the case, you got to move closer to the equator to get more sunlight in between the summer and the winter. Or finally, is it that third option where we're just sort of uh, frustrated about change in general? So that's all we have for this week. Again, keeping your eye on the soybean oil story and see how that plays out. I think it's the biggest demand story that we have here in U.S. agriculture uh, here in 2021. I think it's a, a little bit of a change. You got to see how that plays out in the next several months. Of course, two is the acreage debate. Uh, we actually have noticed that the soybeans divided by corn price ratio has turned even more favorably towards corn. So keep that in mind as you're updating your forecast. And of course, finally, make sure you change your clocks. So in the meantime, until next week, stay curious. Thanks so much for joining us. 